It is, to be fair also, not an easy change. It's quite a radical change. I, thought, I think people are just coming to terms of what carbon neutrality means. And it's not a, it's not a, a, a minor uh, change, it's not an incremental change, it, it's a radical change. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a new podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Today we're in Madrid at the 25th Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, better known as the annual International Climate Change Negotiations. And we're really very fortunate to have with us Andre Marcoux, who has had a great deal of experience in these annual negotiations and in a variety of other matters in the energy industry and more broadly in climate change. Andre is currently the executive director of the Roundtable on Climate Change and Sustainable Development. Welcome, Andre. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me here today. Great to have you. I'm really interested to hear your impressions of COP25 here in Madrid. But before we talk about that, I want to go back to learn how it is you came to be where you, where you are. You've had a substantial amount of experience. So I want to start briefly with, you know, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up a little bit like many of the, many of the people these days, a little bit of everywhere. But, you know, I was, I was born in, in Eastern Europe, but kind of immigrated in Canada early in my life. I, uh, I, uh, I went to school at, at McGill in, in Montreal and then uh, spent a number of years in the in the energy industry before moving into more uh, uh, the uh, if you want the discussion the debate the, the global debate on climate change which i've been doing now for the last 20 odd years so your first job out of school was that it was at in in the hydroelectric sector yeah it was uh, in uh, in ontario hydro which uh-huh. its name is somewhat misleading it, it originates with sir adam beckett at niagara uh, power plant but really, it's, it was at that time the largest power company in North America. And so what are a few of the highlights? I mean, one of the highlights of your career that I'm interested in hitting on is my recollection is that you were actually the founder of the International Emissions Trading Association. Yes, in, uh, you know, I was, uh, uh, I was involved in the early days with, uh, with the uh, Secretary General of the Rio Conference, who was a great uh, believer in, in market forces in, in addressing environmental scarcities and environmental constraints. So uh, we were involved in some of the dialogues that ANCTAD put together to, uh, to talk about emissions trading in the, in, in the Rio progr- uh, process and, and following the Rio process. And that led after at some point to some of the major uh, corporates uh, uh, pushing for the establishment of an international group of companies to push for the the concept of a global carbon price and that's how the inter, something called the International Emission Trading Association which was a Geneva based nonprofit was established in 1999 so 2 years after the Kyoto Protocol yeah that was uh, you know the uh, actually the, the the founding was in uh, uh, or the, the, the initial attempt at founding it was at uh, one of the, the these these meetings the what is called was one of the the cops mm-hmm. in uh, in Buenos Aires 
but really it started a year later. So yes, the 90, two years after after Kyoto, which is a natural reaction if you want to Kyoto because the logical flow is from from the Rio conventions to to the Kyoto protocol to mm-hmm. an emission trading system. It's a logical progression in terms of granularity. Indeed, and you know, speaking of emissions trading, you've also had experience in the private sector in trading. Yeah, well, I had two different positions. You know, at some point in in, in you know, people were were doing policy and people were doing business, and I felt compelled somehow to try. And so I, I had two two roles. One of them was was CEO of the uh, Carbon Climate Exchange in Paris, and then I was head of regulatory affairs at one of the large uh, Geneva-based trading companies uh, dealing with carbon, mercury, energy trading. Mm-hmm. Much broader company than than carbon, but nevertheless involved in that. So in terms of trading, we're going to get into Article 6 mm-hmm. of the uh, Paris Agreement in a second. But first, I want to take a broader view. You've been, you were here last week. Yeah, I've been right? here actually a few days before. Because, Even before. Yeah, there were, there were you know, bilateral meetings and, right. and, and, and a number of, of informal meetings between negotiators, yes. So I, I, I just arrived a few hours ago. So tell me, tell us, our listeners as well, uh, what's your impression of the first week, but broader than Article 6, just in general? Yeah, my, my sense is obviously that, uh, you know, there is a, uh, we are at a stage now where the, a lot of the conceptual work has been done because we got a Paris Agreement and we have a Paris rule book uh, with, that was approved in, at, at the uh, last year's uh, annual conference uh, on climate change in, in Katowice. Uh, and, that, and we are now refining even further. There are things around the tableau reporting systems, things of that sort. So the level of granularity is getting lower and lower, and, 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 uh, or higher and higher, actually, the other way around. And uh, I think people are working with quite a lot of diligence and, and enthusiasm. They really, everybody realizes that we got to make this thing work and make it really operational. And the last piece that, if you want, is not uh, not nailed down is the uh, the Article Six part of the rule book, and that is for those of those that have followed these things over the years. You would make a comparison between the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, and the Marrakesh Accords and and the Paris Rule Book. That is kind of the equivalence between these two. So tell us what are the basics? There are several elements of. Article 6, elements that are both interesting, that make it important, but presumably have also made it difficult for the delegates to, you know, achieve agreement on the rule book, which are the details to some degree, as they did on the other articles. Well, by necessity, when you write an international agreement, whether the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement, there are a, a number of ambiguities that you live in, constructive ambiguities. Yeah, people, you know, everybody finds themselves into it, but at some point you've got to come back in the rule book and nail that down. Now, and the, the problem is that, the, the, the fundamental problem is that the, the, the Kyoto Protocol was a very Cartesian uh, agreement. It made mm-hmm. a lot of sense, you know, there were, you know, caps uh, in budgets. And, and people could trade between the, the allocation between those caps and everything added and subtracting in a very, very simple way or, or logic is a giant cap and trade scheme, essentially. When you come here, this is you know, the, the attempt and the reason why we got everybody involved in the, all the countries in the, in the Paris Agreement was largely because it was a bottom up. And that's great. And, you know, this is the way to go. It will converge over time as it must. But when it comes to market, this diversity, which is the strength of the Paris Agreement, is creating headaches. 
because if you got a, a broad variety of, of contributions called nationally determined contributions, and these uh, each country has made one uh, one pledge, but these pledges are, are expressed in very very different ways, and that strengths that that diversity will make the strengths of the Paris Agreement makes it difficult to get into accounting and, and, and commodities, create commodities, because you have different currencies. It's, it's a very diverse world. So, so just to be clear about this, in the Kyoto Protocol, where there was emissions trading under Article 17, and then there also, of course, was the Clean Development Mechanism and an offset program that turned out to, in some sense, be even more important. Um, there was emissions trading, but it was among those countries, the Annex One countries, who all had specific caps, what we now refer to as mass-based yeah. caps. And what we're dealing with here uh, is a much greater degree of heterogeneity in terms of the participating countries. Yes, because I, I'm trying to remember very hard if anybody has a, a, a commitment in the form of a cap, which it then translates in, in a budget, the amount, mm -hmm. the total amount of emissions right. that you can have over the period. Yeah. It's not. In many cases, in many cases, they are expressed in, in a uh, year-end commitment, like we're going to do minus 30% compared to 1990 in 2030. But that is very difficult to de define as a budget. It's just an end point. Or you even have other diversities, you know, the amount of deforestation that you do or the amount of... Uh, uh, renewable megawatts in your matrix or renewable megawatt hours in your energy mix. It's it, it, it's a very, very diverse thing. And again, to, to begin to compare these things and start to add and subtract when you transfer between different countries, you really have to come to a common denominator. And, and parties, parties, some of them more genuine than others, will resist coming to that commonality that would make it easy to, to, to trade. And and to be specific then, the part of Article 6 that we're really focused on now that we're talking about is Article 6.2, where there is essentially something that looks like nation-nation trading uh, of responsibility. Look, the uh, in the, uh, as you very well uh, outlined, uh, the Kyoto Protocol had, had these two elements of it. One of them is, is countries that had caps, the developed countries, trading among each other, allowances, allocations. Uh, and then they had these, these baseline and credit mechanisms that could be imported under the cap in order to, to help countries meet the cap. But they were all expressed in 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 a uh, in a unit, mm -hmm. commoditized unit that had a face value of a ton, and so that there was there was no great mystery, and they were all issued by the United Nations. So again, there was one regulator. In this case, in article, you have an Article Six Point Two, which basically says that that countries can can transfer things among each other, and then you have a, an Article Six Point Four, which create which creates a protocol for creating emission reductions that can be traded. Where one ends and the other, what is the role of these, these two, uh, uh, if you want, these two articles? Even that is a little bit of a debate. One does, one end stops, and there were, were some arguing that they have to ask in tandem, with others ask, uh, arguing that they are parallel worlds. So I, I'm glad you used the word transfer, talking about 6.2 rather than trade. You know, I'll, I'll tell you my view, and you can tell me if 
this contrast with your own. I'd, I'd love to hear is that, you know, my understanding, my view of the situation is that individual countries are going to put in place climate policies. Some are going to be cap and trade systems. Some are carbon taxes. Most will probably be neither. There'll be some kind of performance standards or other kinds of targets or whatever. And then some of those jurisdictions as with the case of California and Ontario, Switzerland and the EU, formerly Australia and the EU, will form a linkage, essentially bilateral recognition. And it could be even heterogeneous. It could be carbon taxes and performance standards. We've done work on that. It's still possible. Um, then the question comes up, however, and that's still not even under the, that's still not the Paris Agreement at that point. Um, that's just as you know, California and Ontario has had nothing to do with the Paris Agreement. They just went ahead and did it. So two parties to the Paris Agreement go ahead and do that. But then the issue comes up, what's the accounting for that to make sure that under the Paris Agreement, they're really not double counting, they're not both taking credit for the same thing under their respective NDCs, and we're witnessing it properly. So my view is that the role of Article 6.2 is fundamentally as an accounting mechanism, whereas what I've read in some of the documents I've seen, they talk about trading, one country trading to another, and that scares me, Andre, because that's Article 17 of the Kyoto Protocol, which for reasons I wrote about with Bob Hahn in 1999, was never really going to succeed. Countries aren't cost minimizers. They don't have the information to know what the marginal abatement costs are. So where do you, you know, there's a spectrum from it's basically an accounting mechanism to wait. This is, we're talking about trading. They're trading ITMOs. In an international, they're buying and selling these countries. Uh, the uh, I, I I think I would kind of you know without you being my my host today, I think that would fall where you come from because Article six point two is essentially a framework for accounting okay. for transfers. That's all it is. it is. If there is a market to be made, that's something completely different and will be built on the framework of yeah. this 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 uh, right. this accounting system. You need the accounting right. system. Essentially, you know, people will buy or transfer things to each other if they understand how they account for it, and they they perceive or they know it has compliance value, and that is where the accounting system under Article Six Point Two comes into play. Article 6.2, at least in my estimation, does not is not supposed to pierce the the, the, the national veil, as you know you okay. don't pierce the corporate right. veil, you don't right. pierce the national veil. What right. happens be in the country and the reduction? That's the business of that country. It has to explain it very well in a transparency framework what is done, and you can criticize out as much as you wish. But in the end, it is the prerogative of the country. All you do when you transfer it, you gotta tell, you gotta make sure that you don't double count it, and that's the main, the main issue. So, so why is Article Six Point Two important? Other, uh, there's the obvious point that it's the one part that hasn't been completed. But is there something about Article? Six, six, I should say more broadly than the six, two, um, that makes it fundamentally important in terms of the Paris Agreement, in your mind? I think people have not come necessarily to terms with the concept of trading in order to meet a uh, environmental constraint. There's a broad acceptance that this concept exists, but I, my suspicion is that once you take it to the people on the street, there's still a somewhat reluctance to say, well, I'm going to trade and, and buy myself out of an obligation. Mm -hmm. yes. I think and the second thing is there is a an issue of still 
large flows of money coming from one country to the other rather than spending it at home. So these are things that the, the, the final thing, which I think is really the important thing, is that if used in a massive way if, and if not done properly, it does have the ability to actually uh, affect the delivery of the Paris Agreement. If you do this in a massive way and, and it is not done properly, the, the credits are not of, of some decent quality and the accounting is not right, yes, you could have because the amounts that could flow through this could be significant. Looking broadly um, at the negotiations, but including Article 6, what would happen here in Madrid, Madrid that would cause you to characterize you know, a week from now to characterize these talks as having been successful? I think that the, uh, there's no way within the constraints of time that we have, and, and it is a concert of nations, so there is, everybody needs to talk. Uh, within this, this constraint, I think that what you need, you need enough to be able to operationalize, to, to, to lay the, the basis that somebody can go and start investing money. That's the fundamental thing. And to me, there are a number of things. First of all, is that there is a broad agreement how to do the accounting. Because you know, if you don't have that agreement, people are gonna be you know, kind of saying in the corporate wardroom, what am I investing money into? The second thing is, which is very important, I think is broadly missed, is what do you count? Because there are different ways if you transfer 100 units, if you look at, you know, I mean, we'll not get into the weeds here, but if you look at the, the options that are available, there are different ways of what you count. And if you, if you transfer 100, but you can only use 10 for your compliance, then of course you're only gonna pay for 10. So I think that's a very important thing that needs to be nailed down. The market will somehow sort it out and will make a decision whether they want it or not. But unless you do that, I would be very hesitant to invest money if I don't know what the value is at the end of the pipe. So in terms of the rule book that the negotiators are going to be writing for, again, for Article 6.2 at least, here in Madrid over presumably the next five to six days or so, um, given that there's all this heterogeneity, both in terms of the different policy instruments that are used in different parties, but also, as you've emphasized very importantly, tremendous heterogeneity in terms of the nature of the NDCs themselves. You know, the date, mass baits, relative to business as usual, carbon intensity, and then sort of even the extremists, some that are not even emissions, like the degree of penetration of renewables. Is it conceivable that some of these ought to be identified as being appropriate for Article 6.2 and some not, or do you not see that? Is this, should it be open to all at this point? Look, it, it, there is a strong resistance from some parties that are more genuine than others, which are saying, I don't have to, to modify my, my nationally determined contribution to fit into Article 6, and all, it's, gotta, it's gotta be able to cover everybody. Reality is that 98%, you know, I'm just drawing a figure, 98% of any transfers, any dealings is going to be in CO2. There's, there's little doubt about that. So uh, the question is, do you allow the market to figure this one out? Because if you happen to be 
a country, you will not buy something that you don't think is recognizable and you cannot stand up in, in a room and defend it. So is it as, you know, it, can you allow the market to regulate something like this? Or as a matter of principle, you know, you, you, you don't want to do that or you don't want to be seen as doing that. But it is, there is a strong resistance to disqualifying certain NDCs from participating in, in Article 6, even though they will never do it. Mm -hmm. So you've been very diplomatic and we haven't named a single country, so I won't force you to do it. But uh, there are obviously particular parties of the world, both co specific countries and also specific coalitions that naturally have negotiating positions on this as they do on any issue. Well, look, I, you know, I've written about this and in, in some publications I've been asked to, to remove them and in some I've, under my own, my own uh, letterhead I kept them. But it's quite clear that there are two different views of the world. There's a, a view of the world that is centered around the European Union with some of the Latins and, and some of the Africans and uh, the islands, uh, the LDCs, to take a view that you really have to do all your business in, in CO2 because this is what the, the atmosphere sees and this is the logic of, of the Paris Agreement and the final analysis. And there is another group, which is not a minor group, it includes India, China, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, which take the view that you've got to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. uh, now, to what degree this latter group hangs together because they, uh, they are coming uh, through the same philosophical idea or they have other things in common, it's, it's, it's a more complicated story. But it is a two groupings that, that kind of hang together on this. Yeah, it's interesting how on different issues, different groups seem to form. So on some issues, China is on a is not part of that group, and on this, China is very much part of that group. Yeah, it, it's you know pol politics and, and, and negotiation makes things better fellow exactly. sometimes. And in this case, yes, indeed, this is a collection of, 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 of countries that, in most cases, are historically have not seen eye to eye. In this case, because of the convergence on, on different sides of Article Six they stand together. Now, how strong this coalition is, I can't tell you. I mean, it's going to be tested at some point, and we'll right. see. So, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, you've been following and engaged in these negotiations for a long time. In fact, before the cops, going back to the UNFCCC in Brazil in 1992, and then, you know, finally then the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, then just a few years ago, the Paris Climate Agreement. What, what's your basic assessment of the structure of the Kyoto Protocol compared with the structure of the Paris Agreement? From a trading point of view, the, the Kyoto Protocol was a very Cartesian and very easy to understand structure. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. His great weakness was, in my, in my own humble opinion, the fact that he didn't have a graduation mm -hmm. uh, ceremony, he didn't have a way of countries graduating from, from not having caps to, to having to have some obligation and contribution. Maybe we should just explain to the listeners that what you're referring to is the fact that under the Kyoto Protocol, only what were essentially the OECD countries at the time, the industrialized world, named in an appendix, Annex 1, had responsibilities. 150 other countries didn't have direct emissions control responsibilities, although they were participants in other ways. Since Rio and, and Kyoto, the world has changed quite dramatically in terms of emission profiles and, and, and economic right. power. So what was acceptable in, in, in the balance that was acceptable at that time became unacceptable. At, at, and that happened, that came very obvious in, in Copenhagen, at the COP in, in Copenhagen 2009, 
where an extension to the Kyoto Protocol was sought under roughly the same structure, and it fell flat. Uh, it was just not something that parties, countries seem to want to do anymore. And the outcome was this, this Paris Agreement, which is a, a decentralized, you know, kind of pledge and review type of, of, of approach, uh, which is easier to do as a to bring the nations to the table, but when it comes to markets, all of a sudden it creates this this headaches. There's no doubt. Right. I mean, the very element of the Paris Agreement that led to this broad scope of participation, then at 98 percent or whatever it is now of countries that are participating being associated with emissions of that percentage, that's the same element that then causes what you would anticipate would be not very great ambition given the global commons nature of the problem and the free rider issue. All these things are converging. The question is to what degree do you force this to do it through the Article 6 mm -hmm. or you really are waiting for the first global stock take in 2023. And it's obviously parties that, you know, would see see the end game as as you know a a a, a much more coordinated uh, type of uh, national determined contributions and uh, accounting and everything else but they're not willing to to wait till 2023 and are you know through the back door trying a little bit to force things out while uh, you know a num number of other countries are resisting this for the moment, you know, how long they're going to resist and will they be able to resist in 2023 as well? It, it's something that is probably not. So what should our listeners be watching for over the next five days? What are some key markers that people might try to pay attention to? Well, I think that what you've done, first of all, you know, is there is there an outcome? There is something always called a, a, a cop decision that, that you know, in... in uh, in Katowice, it was a one-pager because they couldn't reach anything. And now, presumably, you're going to see three decisions, one for Article 6.2, one for 6.4, and one for 6.8, which we haven't discussed, which is non-market approaches. And the detail of granularity in the decision and what's being punted to the next years, because this, all these decisions will say in Article 6.2, this is how you do the accounting, this, that, and the other thing. But then there will be at the beginning also a work program in order to elaborate some of the things that will either not be doable within the time frame or, again, we're punting in because we want a decision on something. Sometimes you don't, you know, you don't jump. You kind of go in small steps. This is, seems to be the case here. So, you know, beyond these negotiations, beyond even the Paris Agreement, would you characterize yourself as pessimistic or optimistic about the progress that the world is making on addressing climate change? We're optimistic in the sense that we're moving in the right direction. I think we need to be not so optimistic at the speed of change. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not an atmospheric scientist, but you know the IPCC and other reports are quite clear on what what needs to be done, and I don't think we're matching that that speed of change. It, it is, to be fair, also not an easy change. It's quite a radical change. I, thought, I think people are just coming to terms of what carbon neutrality means. And it's not a, it's not a, a, a minor uh, change. It's not an incremental change. It, it's a radical change. You know, one thing that we've seen change, at least from my perspective, that seems relatively new in this realm, is the rise both in Europe and in the United States 
of activism in these youth movements regarding climate change. What's your reaction to that? As someone who's been observing this, you know, and participating for so for decades, now there's this suddenly this new element in the international discussions. Well, you know, this is where we may part sides a little bit, Rob, because I would I would argue that there's still, you know, the enthusiasm and the uh, the belief is one thing, but there's the cold reality of transitions. And and we, you know, I'm, I was born somewhere in Eastern Europe, and I, I haven't lived there in, in, in decades, and I don't have much of a connection. But I do know that there's been a, a great transition that has either sometimes not managed or badly managed, and the whole generation has been lost and, and affected badly. So I think that we do need to make that transition, there's no doubt, but I think it needs to be well managed. Mm-hmm. And for that, we need to understand what the impacts are. We've got to put in place the mechanism, and we have solidarity is going to be very important. So I think that the, the youth bring the enthusiasm and so on, and some, some of the others will have to bring the reflection to, to match that. So you may be surprised to hear that we don't diverge. My ah, perspective okay. is the same as yours on that. We're going to end with that. Uh, thank you very much, Andre, for taking time to join us today. Our, our guest has been Andre Marcoux, the executive director of the Roundtable on Climate Change and Sustainable Development, and a longtime observer and participant in these annual climate negotiations. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, conversations on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.